new, it's fresh, and we enjoy it. You know, when we look at the promises that come with new life, and we connect that to the resurrection and our standing, it just does something in our brains. There's a person by the name of uh, Evan Essar who said that Easter is the only time when it's perfectly safe to put all of your eggs in the same basket. And as you think about that, as a Christian, that's true. As a Christian, we put all of our eggs, so to speak, in the basket of Christ, in who he is and what he has said. You think of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in, sorry, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Okay, just seeing where my slide ends there. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and, all your, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, only we are to be, we of all people, are most to be pitied. You think of what Paul writes there, and we understand as Christians how our faith is around the resurrection. How he writes this, and it's very plain. It's a passage that, that is kind of the rub for us as Christians, right? If Christ has not been raised, then we are still in our sins. And if we put that to the forefront of our minds, we understand the need that we have for a Savior. Now, I suppose if that's not the case, then we could attempt to go back to the law and try to complete that. But Galatians teaches us that the purpose of the law is to expose our sins. So it's a true joy that we get to come and celebrate on Resurrection Sunday, to go through Holy Week, to understand the connection of the Passover to enter somberly into Good Friday and understanding the price that had to be paid for the shed blood to pay for our sins, to be that atoning sacrifice to this morning and the empty tomb. It is such a joy to be able to understand that when we celebrate this day. It's one of the most exciting times of the year to preach and one of the most terrifying Because there's so much that you want to encompass. There's so much that you want to talk through. You know, I read through a lot of different books, a lot of different commentaries over the last few weeks to try to find a good passage for Easter, to find something that that can be fresh, that can encourage us, that can energize us. But at the same time, you want to be clear, you want to be concise with what you want to say. And, And as you talk about the resurrection, it's hard because you want to incorporate all of the word of God. And I know that's even a lot for me. I know I go long, and I'm, well, I got all kinds of time today. But it's difficult to narrow down what you're going to be talking about on days like today. You could recount his goodness and be here all day. 
I mean, we could talk about the, the four different accounts in the Gospels and we can compare those. We can look at the differences and we can see some similarities. We can talk about theology. We can talk about how the New Testament writers write about the resurrection and the impact that that has for the early church who kind of set the stage for us to stand upon their shoulders to praise God, the saints that have gone before us. We look at the expression throughout history and we can see all the different directions that we could go. You know, I have a, a piece of artwork in the house. Elaine had picked it out early in our marriage. And it's a picture of an old typewriter. And on the piece of paper, there's a title, and it says, The Greatest Love Story Ever Told. And then the first line says, In the Beginning, God. Now, I'm sure I can get some of our CC kids to come up and start reciting and singing that song because they've been learning all of Genesis 1 this year. But really, when you understand the resurrection and you're trying to study the resurrection, it starts in Genesis. It starts with the love of God through creation to save his people, to go to the cross, to do what was necessary through an act of love. We have to deeply understand the story of God to truly appreciate the resurrection. That while we were still enemies, God sent his son to die for us. But death could not hold him. And he was victorious over the grave. A summary that we are all too familiar with. And that being said, I'm sure that I'm going to get ahead of myself in a lot of ways today. And we'll probably touch on all of those different things that I had mentioned. Different directions that we could go at some point during the message. But today, I wanted to talk with you through John 20, the passage that we read during the call to worship. We're going to go through this and and look at a couple of different points as we walk through it to, to impact our own walks in our faith and hopefully some of our theology as well. You know, one commentator puts it this way. He says, in each of the resurrection appearances, we will discover a pattern with the following features. The beneficiaries of the appearance are engulfed in human emotion. The risen Christ appears to them in the midst of their condition, and as a result, their condition is transformed. You know, with these type of features in mind, I want to dive into this passage in a couple of different sections to address them, to point some different things out. And this morning, let's start with the first 10 verses. So if you have your Bibles open, you can look at those with me. Now, on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early, while it was still dark, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple, and they were going toward the tomb. Sorry, Paul. There you go. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. And stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloth lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, 
not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in. He saw and believed, for as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. So I mean, in that passage or in that part of the section there, you can see the different emotions being there in terms of confusion, in terms of lostness within these three people. Emotion that's going to continue throughout the, this chapter, but as we see this confusion of what's going on, I mean, think about putting yourself in those shoes. So let's say you go to the love, a loved one's graveside and you find that it's dug up. What would your emotions be? Probably a little confused, probably a little bit angry, looking for somebody to find some answers, wondering what's going on. Let alone with Jesus, you think about how there's supposed to be this big stone that's in front of the tomb. And in the other Gospels, you hear how the other women that are with Mary, they're discussing who's going to move the stone so that we can get into the tomb. It was kind of a problem for them. But she gets there, um, and, and you know, John's account doesn't have the Pharisees placing guards there and, and things like that, but she's probably assuming that it's the Pharisees in terms of they took Jesus' body. The Pharisees either hired the Romans or somehow they moved the, the tomb regardless Jesus's, or they moved the body regardless Jesus' body is not there. So you see how she is confused and she goes back and she tells the disciples what happened and Peter and John run to the tomb, perhaps in a panic, still confused, investigating this matter. There's probably still a lot of confusion. Now, I think it's difficult to understand verses 8 and 9. As you look at those, the context there isn't clear. The phrase there, uh, he saw and he believed. Now, it could be that he believed the body was taken or that he was alive. That's kind of how the different interpretations revolve around that. If it were me, if I was the one that was writing this book... Um, I would be writing it like, of course I believed. I knew right away. Yep, I, I believed that he was alive. Just like I was the first one to get to the tomb, right, Peter? You know, it'd be kind of like Captain America passing Peter on your left, you know? I'm competitive in that way. So we, you know, the context there isn't really there for understanding what the term he saw and he believed. Either way, something is missing. They're a bit lost. Now, obviously, it's not a one-to-one in terms of a person who is lost-lost because the disciples knew Jesus before, but I want to relate this feeling of lostness to those who do not know Jesus or perhaps yourselves before you knew Jesus. You know, as a believer, there's also times in your life where you're maybe away from Jesus, Maybe you're stuck in some sin that you're struggling with. Maybe you're forsaking him in some areas and you can feel lost. I want us to understand that God's word brings us hope in in those times of lostness and confusion. See, Ecclesiastes tells us that eternity is written on man's heart. Romans 1 tells us that God can be perceived because of his eternal power and divine nature. Sin separates us from the Father. 
And then we have this revelation that draws us to him, where it begs the question of what is the purpose of life? Where did we come from? And people in their lostness search all over for different answers, whether that's science, whether that's within themselves, whether that's other religions. As a believer, I believe that there's times in our life that we can still go through similar types of lostness, where we don't see Jesus, where we're not close to him, as I said, probably because of sin in our life. Maybe we're blinded by anger. Maybe we're looking for him in wrong places. Maybe we're being impatient and we struggle with sin and it takes us away from the Father because sin separates us. Not necessarily talking in terms of salvation and losing salvation, but talking about that connection and that relationship to where we can have this feeling that we are lost. And I want to emphasize that feeling, a double meaning within the term lost for those before faith who are lost and those who might just be lost in direction because of the distorted beliefs that they have. But we have to understand that God seeks and saves the lost. And that, and that is such a blessing. And I want us to see that in this next section. Now this is going to be a larger section. And Paul, if you want to do this one for me, that would be great. But we're going to read from verses 11 through 29. Verse 11, but Mary stood weeping outside the tomb. And as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She saw two angels in white sitting there, sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? She said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. And Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father and your father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. On the evening of that day, the first of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see his hands, the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them, although the doors were locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands, and put your 
hand and place it on my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now, a larger section there to cover, obviously. Um, But each of these sections deal with people seeing the resurrected Jesus. And here's the beauty that's within this. Whether the disciples have been going through grief, like Mary, fear, like the eleven, or doubt, like Thomas. Jesus met them where they were at. I believe this is a key point, especially as we understand the gospel message. Jesus comes to the person. Just like the lost sheep, he leaves the 99 to go find the one. If you're struggling in grief, Jesus is your comforter. If you're struggling with fears, Jesus says, peace be with you. If you're struggling with doubt, there's more than enough evidence in Jesus' word for a person to cry out, my Lord and my God. Let's look at what happens to each of these people individually here. Starting with Mary. Mary is full on in her grief after the disciples leave, standing there right in front of the tomb. Um, Now I've heard from reputable sources that men are notoriously oblivious to what's going on around them. Notoriously. You ever go see a man go try to make a sandwich, he opens the fridge and says, where's the ketchup? From the other room, it's second shelf right by the oranges. Can't see it. Then somebody has to come and find it for them. I've heard. I mean, I don't know. But here's Mary... And you have these two angels sitting where the body of Jesus was supposed to be. Now, I'm going to assume that they weren't there when Peter and John went into the tomb to see the linens. They could have been oblivious. Sure, it doesn't say. But these angels appear in the tomb. And Mary is just caught up in her emotion, caught up in her grief, so much so that she doesn't realize what's right in front of her. Then Jesus comes and speaks to her. But even before that, she looks at Jesus and supposes him to be the gardener. She cannot see the truth. She is blinded by her grief. She is blinded by her emotion. To compare and relate this, think of the time before you were saved. You could not see the truth, you were blind. How many people have we shared the gospel with? Brought them to the foot of the cross to see Jesus and they still don't believe. They still don't see. Does that make you frustrated? Does that make you upset? How can you not see this? How do you not understand? He's right there in front of you just like the ketchup in the fridge. Hear this. It's not your job to save them. You've done your part, you've shared the gospel message, you've led them to the cross. You cannot make a person believe. Because the moment that Mary's eyes are opened are when Jesus calls her name. And we don't want to miss that. 
It's not Peter that calls her name. It's not John. It's not because you call your son and daughter's name to believe. You cannot believe for them. You cannot make them believe. Once Jesus calls their name, he can meet you right there in that emotion. He can meet you in that grief. And he can comfort you in deep ways. Do not be oblivious to his voice. Let's look at the disciples. The disciples are locked in a room out of fear for the Jews, out of fear of the world around them. And Jesus comes and he calms their fear. He shows them his hands and his side and he gives them courage. He gives them the Holy Spirit to be able to go out into the world and to not fear. You think about fear. It can infect anyone and everyone, right? You think about new believers that are in foreign countries. They're on a different level of fear, so to speak. For them to come to Jesus without fear, they would have to count the cost in a way that could be their life, that could be their community, that could be their family where they would be shunned. Now, for a believer in America more so, I would say the fear to come to Christ is a little bit different. I think the fear there is to be more than just a Christian by name, more than just a nominal Christian, somebody who actually lives by the will of Christ, by the word of Christ. Well, I can't stand up against them because that's intolerant. I don't want to be rude to those people. I don't necessarily want to stand for the truth because the truth is subjective, isn't it? Are we afraid of what the world will think of us because we want to be friends with the world? Or do we want to stand for the truth? See, I think a nominal Christian has fears that seem irrational that seem emotional, that seem more concerned with the things of this world and brings in fear, worry, and anxiety. Now, I'm not saying that we don't struggle with those things, that we don't wrestle with those things. Don't mishear me in that. But fear is a lack of trust in God. Fear is a lack of making Jesus the Lord in your life, where we're relying more on the world and the world's ways than God's. If we sense fear, if we sense worry, if we sense anxiety coming into our life, we are to take it to the Lord. We are to take it to him in prayer. We're not to stew in it. We're not to sit in it. We're not to be in a locked room allowing the enemy to run rampant in our hearts and minds. You know, you, you shouldn't say things like, I have anxiety or I have depression because those are identifications. Instead, you should say, I have the Holy Spirit. Because God has given us the Holy Spirit. He's not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but one of power. And when we make these worldly things our identity, we're throwing off the identity that we have from Christ, and we're putting on what the world wants to call us. We are his and his alone. We might have struggles, yes, but they do not define us. Jesus comes into this room and he breathes life into them and onto them. And he does the same for us. He tells us peace. And he gives us his spirit and we are sent into the world as his ambassadors. 
Now this kind of a sidebar, but this last line of verse 23. You know, sometimes as you read things in the Bible, things seem out of place, like why is that there? It doesn't make any sense. And, and we can be tempted just to read over it, to skip over it, to ignore it, because, you know, you know I don't know, it's, it's hard, it's difficult. But we're not called to do that. We're called to wrestle with the word. Now, as I, as I look at this verse, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold the forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, we know that the authority to forgive sins is God's and God's alone, right? And Jesus had been given that authority throughout his ministry. So what I see here is I believe that this has to do with church discipline and things of that nature. Similar to the keys of heaven where the binding and loosing verses and things like that. Where the forgiveness of sin is, is from God and God has forgiven sin. But I think that we're all too familiar as believers that when we live this life, there are moments and there are times when we're living in unrepentant sin. And we're facing those consequences or we're just, you know, we're thinking we're okay because God's loving, he's merciful, Right? And we have to understand that sin has consequences. Because we're forgiven, it's not an excuse to just to go out and do whatever we want willy-nilly. To take the cost of the, of the cross, the price that was paid on our behalf, lightly. I think it's a continuation of the ministry of Jesus as well. In John 9, he says this. Jesus said, For the judgment I came into this world... That those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now you say, We see, your guilt remains. See, if people reject God, they're still in their sins. They're still living in sin. They're still living in unforgiveness. They're hardened and they're blind. Forgiveness of sin is offered, but they're refusing because they want to live in the way that they want to live. It's, it's a selfish type of living. It's not living with the Lord as, as the Lord of your life, as Christ is the Lord of your life, because you want to be the Lord of your life. And you find yourself stuck in these sin strongholds. You find yourself stuck in these patterns that you can't get out of. If you want to live unrepentantly, you're not going to experience the forgiveness and the freedom that comes from that in your life in the present day. I think that this verse is more in the sanctification realm. So just a little bit of explanation with that and continue to wrestle with it because it is a difficult verse. Let's move on to Thomas. Known as the doubter because of this section. I don't deny that. But there's a little bit more, I think, that's to Thomas that often gets overlooked. See, I think Thomas has a boldness to him. First off, he was not behind the locked doors like the other disciples. So perhaps he didn't have the same fear that they had. Now, that's not to say that he wasn't behind some other locked doors. You know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, all of them fled for, out of fear of the Romans, sure. And he's with them later. But he comes back and he demands to see proof. Proof, by the way, which was freely given to the other 11 who were cowering in fear and Jesus just comes up and shows them that proof. 
So I think he gets a bad rap sometimes. Jesus met those needs. He met the needs for the 11, and he's going to meet the needs for Thomas as he just voices his concerns more in a bold way. You think about doubts. All of us have doubts. All of us have struggles. Again, you relate it to those that are unsaved and the doubts they have about coming to faith. You think about the doubts that you have now because you don't have 100% understanding of the word of God. We continue to wrestle through that. But we have to understand that Jesus knows exactly what we need. Here he comes again. He knows exactly what Thomas' needs are and he puts his words right back at him. He puts his thoughts right back at Thomas and he uses those words. I cannot tell you how many times I've preached a message and as I'm preaching the message, the Lord's like, oh yeah, you're gonna say that? How's that going in your life? You know, and I've told you guys before, I preach a lot of times what I'm going through. I try to be as open and honest as I can about that kind of stuff because life is difficult, life is messy but God's right there in the middle of it and as a body, we get to go through this life together in those regards and that's a beautiful thing. Within this section on doubt, even within the doubt and what's going on, look at what Jesus says as well. Do not disbelieve, but believe. There's such a gentleness. There's such a mercy that is seen in the word of God. You know, God, as Peter says, God does not want any to perish, but all to come to everlasting life. Now, God is not a universalist where everyone is just saved. Salvation comes through believing in his son. And that belief uh, comes through what he has done. You know, and as he calls people, we have that choice to believe. You think about everything that has happened, uh, you know, through that belief, we then are called to go and serve to be his ambassadors. You know, you, you think about the doubts that you have in your life. You think about as you're wrestling, are you wrestling because you're trying to hold on to some pride? Are you wrestling because you're trying to hold on to some selfishness? Because you're lacking in humility and understanding what the truth of the word is? You know, when we look at what the word says here, we see how Jesus comes and and he meets with these people where they're at. I mean, you might think that your life is completely messed up right now and that you're a lost cause. Christ doesn't think so. Jesus doesn't think so. You know, Jesus will meet with you in your grief and he will give you a mission to go tell others about him. He will meet you in your fears and give you gladness and courage and peace with his spirit. He will hear your doubts and he will give you truth from his word so that you would believe on him in faith. It is such a comfort to know that truth, that his grace is sufficient no matter what you're struggling with. Let's look at the last section. Verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is kind of a purpose statement for the book, a purpose statement for belief, so that you may have life in his name. 
You know, Jesus says in John 10 with the, the story of the good shepherd, 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Did you ever think about that promise from the Lord, how beautiful that is? To have life and to have it abundantly. What does it mean to have life? I mean, as a believer, would you say that your life is abundant right now? Are you just getting by? Jesus said that you may have it abundantly. I've been reflecting on one of my favorite passages, Isaiah 61 3. To appoint unto them that mourn in Zion, to give unto them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness that they might be called trees of righteousness. You know, I want us to think about the abundant life that Jesus offers in regards to the whole of Scripture and the promises within. Because like the disciples, we can get caught up in the things that are going on around us. We can get caught up in the world and be distracted. But Jesus calls us to think about this life and to think about it abundantly. I mean, how often do we think about this life and complain? How often do we think our life is horrible? How often do we think that we are bitter and angry and selfish? Is that coming from the Lord? Is that coming from the word of God? I mean, when we really, really think about the word of God, I think about the grace. I think about the redemption that is given to us by him. And I relate that to my life and I can see that there is so much beauty within it. Even through tragedy, even through trials, even through hardship, there is beauty within it. Let me, I I heard this analogy this week. It was spot on. I mean, if I was a wealthy pastor... And I was able to give everyone $1 million today who would take it. Thank you, Graham. I think some of you didn't raise your hand because you think that there's another shoe that's going to fall. No strings attached to that one. Million dollars. What if I said I was going to give you $10 million, but you wouldn't wake up tomorrow? Would you take it? Do you know what that means? Tomorrow is worth more to you than $10 million. Tomorrow's a Monday. <laughs> what are you going to do with your tomorrow? That it's worth more than $10 million. When you reflect on that and you see the beauty and the joy of being able to wake up each day what complaints can we actually have? I'm sure we can come up with something. We usually do. But reflect on the grace that we have, the redemption from Christ. To not sit in complaints and bitterness and anger, but to sit in his all-sufficient grace that has forgiven me for the sins that I have committed. The 
the love that went to the cross for my sake, that I might spend eternity with him? Hallelujah. But I want to sit here and complain about my stub toe? We have been given today, and it is a blessing. Never look down on that. We have been given new life, beauty for the ashes of the old. You know, there could be a lot of resonance and empathy to the people from John 20 today, the things that they're struggling with, the things that they face in daily life. And I want to encourage you that no matter where you are today in your walk, whether you're somebody who has never believed or somebody who has believed for 50 years, Hearing the good news that Jesus died for your sins plainly and simply is the best thing that you can hear each and every day. To have a resolve to know that Jesus comes to you and that he invites you to his table, that he invites you just as you are in your mess, in your sinfulness, and that Jesus reveals himself to you, you simply need to respond and believe. Just like the thief on the cross. Nothing special about him. No communion, no baptism, no church attendance, no tithing. Just a thief. Recognizing who was right next to him. Humbly, not arrogantly, not pridefully, humbly saying, I'm sinful, I deserve to be right here on this cross. Spends eternity in paradise with Jesus. But you know, Jesus came to the other thief too. He was right in between them. The other thief rejected. It's a reality of this world. We praise God for the salvation that we have received. We understand with childlike faith we come into his open arms. And I want us to hold on to that image this morning because it is arms full of love. Love from the beginning of creation to the point of cross, looking forward to the time that we were reunited with him in heaven. Hold on to this image as you struggle through your grief, through your fear, through your doubts. Hold on to the image that says that Jesus is my Lord and my God because he is the risen king and one day he will raise us up in glory with him. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for the grace that you have given us. I want to thank you for the, open, or the empty tomb and the open invitation that you have given us to believe on your son. Lord, I pray for those of us that struggle. I pray for strength. I pray for courage. And I pray for support as a body to come alongside, to lift each other up, to rejoice when we rejoice, to weep when we weep. Lord, I pray for those lost loved ones that don't know you yet. Lord, may we continue to be an encouraging factor in their life, an ambassador for you to present your gospel message in our words and our actions. Father, the greatest joy that we have is to know you. The greatest way that we can love others is to share your gospel with them. So I pray that you would give us the opportunities to share your gospel this week, to share your love with others, and that you would give us the words to say if we feel that we don't have the words. Because you have given us your spirit to guide us. You have given us your spirit to strengthen us. And we praise you for that, Lord. 
You don't send us out empty-handed. You don't send us out unprepared. Lord, we praise you this resurrection day. And I pray that as we contemplate our faith, that we can make it simple again and that we can just rest in the grace that we've received. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.